2: Hi, I'm Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about difference and difficult conversations. On today's show, we're going to talk about one thing. We're going to talk about the death penalty. And I'll warn you, uh, the second half of the show, I will have a conversation with my former colleague at MTV News, Jamil Smith. We will probably talk about the morality of the death penalty and the political divisions that it brings up and doesn't bring up those pro-life people who, for some reason, are also pro-death penalty, for instance. But the conversation that I think we can bring you that you might not get elsewhere is with Brian Lyman. He is a reporter for the Montgomery Advertiser, and he just covers the Department of Corrections. And part of his beat is the death penalty. He's actually witnessed an execution, and he's seen what happens before and after. I wanted to talk to him not about the morality of it, but about this the process and the experience. What is it like in that room? What is the aftermath? What is covering the death penalty done to him? So, Brian Lyman, in a minute. You're a state government reporter at, for the Montgomery Advertiser in Montgomery, That's Alabama. Right. And the reason why you're on, which is mm-hmm. something that you tweeted a while ago that I saw, mm-hmm. um, quote, a few things in my experience are more depressing than covering an execution. Enormous waste and loss on all sides. So why don't you tell me first about the circumstances of what what brought you to tweet that. And then like I want to dig in on exactly what your experience has been.
3: When you cover a... Um when you cover a death penalty, any 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 kind of death penalty case, you're confronted with a lot of horror. You start with the crime, for example. Um, one of the death penalty cases that I've covered involved a man who was convicted of shooting a police officer and shooting his girlfriend while his girlfriend was trying to protect her child from the gunshots. Um, you know there's just horrible stories of assaults you know just uh murder you know like uh, just dead. and you you see these things detailed in the court filing. so you know so you you read about that stuff that's that's th- that's horrible to that's horrible to read and you, know, you can only you can only imagine what it's like for the victims and the, the family members who were involved with that then you then you look at how the legal system worked. And oftentimes you're you're looking at a number of failures or a number of questionable decisions. Um, Alabama until this year had a provision where a judge could basically overturn the decision of a jury to, uh, Give a life sentence like a judge could basically take that jury's recommendation and decide to impose a death sentence in its place. And there were people in there were judges in Alabama who were notable for doing this, particularly in the mid
2: 90s. Yeah. Can I can I jump in with a question on that? Are, yeah, yeah. Do you elect your judges?
3: Uh, yes, all the judges are elected. And that was a in fact, that that brought down some criticism from the. Uh, Uh, Sonia Sotomayor about four years ago um, that, you know, like this this was giving judges a lot of pressure to impose a death penalty when they, um, even if they felt that it wasn't warranted in those cases. You know, I actually, I spoke with a, I spoke with a circuit judge, the, the, the case that Sonia Sotomayor actually took place in Montgomery. And I spoke with the judge back in 2013 about the circumstances around it. And he told me, you know, I agree with her. I don't want this power at all, but I was bound by the law to to impose the death sentence. In this case, the case involved a man who had who had killed a, a Montgomery police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, the legislature this year only got rid of it, and it was only after a few years of of people like trying to get rid of judicial override in the state of Alabama.
2: So you're t- so you're taking me through the sort of the enormous waste and loss on both sides. Um, mm-hmm. There's the the crime itself, you said, which is, of mm-hmm. course, yeah. um, and when the death penalty is brought up, you're almost guaranteed it's going to be horrific crime that people are talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the system starts, and you have this first layer, which is that um, a jury can decide that for whatever reason, they don't think the death penalty is warranted. You know, perhaps they've been given evidence for whatever mitigating circumstances, whatever, we, we don't know, right? But the jury right. decides mm-hmm. it's not warranted. But then... Because um, judges are perhaps um, thinking about the public pressures, for instance, um, they can override that.
3: Um, uh, right, until this year. Until right. this year,
2: they can override that. So it's like the one of the first institutional or systemic things that happens that feels, you know, not like justice maybe.
3: That's yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: What happens next? Like what are what are what are take us through like all the things that you're thinking about when you think of it as this enormous waste of law and laws. Well,
3: and continuing on the legal process, for example, um you have something that you you have several different layers of, of appeals. There's a direct appeals process that's based on the merits of the case. Um, but then you have something called a Rule 32 procedure which essentially is a place where you can challenge the adequacy of your counsel or bring up any other issues that may have come up, that may have come up in the trial. Um, Robert Nelson, whose execution I covered in June, uh, his, his attorneys who were supposed to be handling his rule 32 petition lived outside of Alabama and they missed some critical filing deadlines in his rule 32 process. Uh, so, you, you know he, he, he found out about this month later and you know, the uh, the attorneys I, I don't think there was any bad faith on the attorney's part they just didn't understand how the, how the state how the state system worked um, so I mean you're talking about also you know like Nelson's uh, you know I think the fa- like the facts of the case strongly point that Nelson was guilty of the crime he was committed the, the crime he was convicted of which was a, again another ghastly. Ghastly crime, but you see, you know, you see that he had, you know, he had the same right to make these arguments in the appeals process. That you know, because he was given unskilled lawyers or unfamiliar lawyers, he didn't get those. So that was, you know, there's another breakdown of, of the system there, where you know, the legal representation that should be there, you know, to ensure that if this machinery is going forward you know oftentimes it's just it it's not it's not there and it's you know it and so that's certainly one other thing you think about and um i guess i mean you know the other thing too to think about too is just the these are long drawn out procedures and you just think about just all the lost time you know not for the for the victims for the families, you know, maybe even sometimes for the families of those who are convicted of it. Um, The tweet I sent out regarded the, um, the Thomas Arthur case, Uh, the crime that Thomas Arthur committed took place, excuse me, the crime that Thomas Arthur was convicted of took place on February 1st, 1982. On February 1st, 1982, I was four years old. Mm. I've lived an entire life since then, I've, you know, I've graduated from college, I've married, I've had children, you know, I've pursued a career, you know, the victim, you know, the victim didn't get to live those years. The family of the victim didn't get to live those years. Um, you know, even, you know, you know, if Thomas Arthur spent 35, 35 years in a small cell block, um, if, you know, you, think about the waste of a life that is, you you know, if you made different choices. Um, I mean, like, like those are those, those are the kinds of things, I mean, those are the kinds of things that you think about. Um, Arthur, I mean, Arthur Arthur in his case, like he was convicted of that crime when he he was serving a life sentence for a previous murder too. So um, it's, I mean, like he was in a work release program. I mean, like you, you just can't get away from just the, Uh, when you're dealing with these death penalty cases, you're often seeing just the absolute worst of what can happen in somebody's life and what can happen in society.
2: And there's yet another layer that happens too, in Alabama specifically, and other states are seeing this as well, which is what goes on at the execution, Mm -hmm. uh, where Alabama has had uh, questions raised about the efficacy of the drugs that they use and the stability Mm -hmm. of the drugs that they use.
3: Yes, um, Alabama, like many other states, uses a three-drug protocol, and the sedative. the The idea of the process is that you get three drugs. The first one is supposed to be a sedative that knocks you out. The second one is supposed to be a paralytic that you know freezes your muscles, and the third is supposed to stop your heart. Uh, Ideally, if this works out well, you know you hope that the you, the goal is that the prisoner is unconscious when the when the fatal drugs are administered to them. For years, Alabama and a lot of other states used this drug called sodium sodium call, um, but pressure uh, on the drug maker basically made that drug took that drug away from uh, from the market uh, back in 2011. At the time, Alabama switched to pentobarbital and it conducted at least one execution with pentobarbital. That drug was taken off the market and Alabama did not have an execution for about two and a half years after that. And then Alabama adopted Florida's execution protocol, which uses a drug called midazolam. Midazolam is uh, medazolam is supposed to be a sedative, but it's not intended to bring people to a state of deep unconsciousness. So, uh, and I've talked to medical professionals who've said, uh, you know, medazolam is the kind of drug where, you know, if you're faced with a high stress event, like like an execution like being like murdered like, like well like yeah yeah you're well, being gone. killed
2: it's like I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll stay away from the value judgment but if you're st- faced if you're in, for instance about to be killed that might be you're, a high stress I mean, Yeah, the, drugs,
3: the, the, the 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 drugs efficacy could be could be wiped out and that's that's a question that's come up with other uh, it's it's a question that's come up in executions the um since we've started, since executions resumed in Alabama at the start of 2016, uh, as far as uh, from, you know, like speaking with my colleagues who have who have witnessed, you know, more more executions than I have, um, most of them have gone off without without problems. There was, however, one in uh, December, the, the execution of Ronald Burt Smith, who was seen to be gasping and uh like just coughing repeatedly. I think he was gasping and coughing for 13 of the 34 minutes when he was, when he was executed. Um, and there've been, you know, there, there was a case in Arizona, uh, where the inmate apparently gasped over 600 times while his execution was being, was, was, was taking place. Um, the Alabama department of corrections, uh, and I, I, should say like, when I've been at these executions, the staff has been, you know, nothing but somber and, you know, as professional as you can be in those situations, but they've never like, like the Robert Smith case, for instance, you know, like it's, it's not clear what exactly happened there. Um, and, um, you know, but we do know that when executions have gone wrong in recent years, medazolam has often been present. Now, whether it's the chief cause or whether there are issues with you know IV lines or whatnot, you know that, that's I mean that's something that's come up. But you know, one of the common threads for all this stuff is that medazolam is present in these executions.
2: FrameBridge is the easiest way to custom frame your favorite art and photos without ever leaving your house. With their simple online ordering process, you can order a fully customized piece in minutes. And here is how it works. You go to framebridge.com. You upload your photo from your computer or directly from Instagram. Or if you have a physical item, they will provide a secure prepaid package so you can mail it in for free. Preview your photo online in any frame style. Choose your favorite or get free help from their talented designers. And the expert team at Framebridge will custom frame your item in days, not weeks or months, and deliver your finished piece directly to your door, ready to hang. And the best part, instead of the hundreds of dollars you'd pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, my listeners get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use the code FRIENDS. Framebridge even offers a happiness guarantee, which I assume has to do with the frame itself and not your life in general. But if for any reason you aren't 100% satisfied with your order, they will make it right. Now, I have used Framebridge myself primarily for Instagram photos. Uh, I have a ton of pictures from the campaign uh, all on Instagram. They're a document of living history. Uh, And I've used um, Framebridge to do kind of a little triptych of some of the conventions, which are a year ago now. I can't quite believe that. Uh, They have tons of different frames to offer a lot of different styles. I've gone with something very sleek and modern, although I have also toyed with doing something uh, from the Trump rallies in a really rococo, like super ostentatious, very Trumpy kind of style, like a big gold gilt frame. Um, I will let you know if I do that. Um, But I can attest the process is really easy. It's as easy as using Instagram itself. And if you are a With friends like these, listener, you can use the code FRIENDS to get, as I said, an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. Again, that's framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. While we're talking about being present at executions, this brings us to your personal experience. You were actually at an execution in June.
3: Yes, the execution of Robert Nelson.
2: Yes. So I guess, you know... What was that like?
3: The best way I can describe it is that it's it's kind of like walking into a tomb. Um, you walk into a short hallway. There's there are white there are white bricks all around you, and uh, you go into a room. Uh, it's it's slightly dark. There's a window there's a window on one side that has a curtain, uh, has a curtain there with a red light shining from, from, from above within the room. So you have this kind of like ghostly red light that's, that's in, in a room that's no bigger than a small bedroom. Um, there are signs just reminding people to be quiet, you know, during the whole process, uh, I, I can tell you, like when I was there, nobody had difficulties being quiet. Um, and you know, at, at some point, the curtain is pulled, and you see, you know, you know, you, you see the you see the person, the, the condemned inmate um, on a. It's basically a hospital gurney, probably the best way to describe it, um, and uh, the warden has a microphone and you know, basically reads out the sentence, um, you know, the inmate is given a chance to say any last words and, uh, chaplain, you know, the the chaplain, you know, like maybe will kneel and say a prayer with the inmate and, uh, then the process, and then the process begins.
2: Mm -hmm. I know you've You said you've applied or or tried to be present for others, Mm -hmm. other executions. This is the first one you're actually at, right? Now, as a fellow journalist, I'm curious though. Why did you feel like it was important to be there? What's the value of being there?
3: Um, I cover state government. That that's my that's my day job, and there's probably no greater power that the Alabama state government has than to, you know, carry out or conduct an execution. Um, so, you know, some people may have strong objections to that power. Some people may say that's a duty that the state government has. But as a reporter, I think it's important that we witness all exercises of what the government does. And you know, as you know, as difficult as it may be to watch, I, I think I think we have to be there to, you know, bear witness to what's being done.
2: And was it difficult to watch for you?
3: Um, it, it was, I was, uh, I was, I was, in, I was intensely nervous and, um, you know, I, I'm on the, on the ride home, for instance, you know, the, um, the execution chamber is a long way away It's in the middle of a rural area. So you have a very long drive back after, after these things happen. So, um, you know, it's certainly, it's, it's certainly a difficult thing to watch. And I, you know, made a point to call my wife, you know, and just kind of talk things through, you know, after, after everything that happened and, uh, Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly something I, I, it's not something I would look forward to. And I think, you know, I don't think any of my colleagues would look forward to covering this, but at the same time, I think we have a duty to do so.
2: And we've talked about what you've described, you know, as the waste and loss of an execution. And we haven't even actually yet touched on what most people might think of as the you know, biggest um, consideration when talking about the death penalty, which is whether or not innocent people wind up, you know, going, going that far. And Alabama, unfortunately has some experience on that side of it too. Right. There's pretty recently in 2015, a man was let off of death row um, after being proven innocent. Uh, That's
3: right. Yeah. That was Anthony Ray Hinton. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I mean, I, I can say for you know when you get into those those questions are hard for you know like if, if you're if you're covering an actually ex- let me say this the, the the capital cases that I've covered to this point um, the the evidence mm-hmm. that I've seen in court or the evidence I've seen in court records would tend to point to the people who. being executed to having done it. Like it's hard to say that. I I don't know that I have real, uh, there are some, you know, there's some questions about like, you know, certain things, but in my experience, it's not so much a question of guilt as so much as, you know, like, well, did these people get adequate representation or did they get you know, uh, like a fair shake, you know, like in the appeals process, or you, you, you know, like were they served well by the court system? Were there political considerations that you know, like maybe put them on death row that might have put somebody else in a prison for the in, in a prison cell for the rest of their lives? Now, that's not to say that you know, there you know, there may not be that, that there could be innocent people on death row. They're very well. You, you know they're very well you, there there are other cases that are coming up that you know I think there some of those inmates may have a stronger case, you know for for their innocence of these crimes. Um, but in general, like in general, like when I've seen the problem so that it, it's generally with the the appeals process and the and the existing process there
2: well, that's interesting on itself though that the, an objection because I think a lot of people would be like, well, of course, the death penalty is wrong and wasteful if you're putting an innocent man through this. But your mm-hmm. point is that it can be wasteful and you're not making a judgment on the wrongness of it but you're seeing the waste and loss as a journalist even with people who you feel pretty certain you know were correctly found guilty but whether the the question for you and and you seem to me maybe posing for the rest of us to consider is is the death penalty the right outcome here um right Mm -hmm. and then for instance in the in the situation you you described earlier with the out-of-state counsel, my gathering is the the real irony there is the out-of-state counsel missed the deadline to file in an area of appeals that had to do with being adequately represented.
3: Right. <laughs>
2: I mean, that's, yeah. you know. Uh,
3: yeah. It, it's something I like, often notice when I'm, like, like if, if I'm covering an execution, there's, um, Uh, you know, and I'm not doubting their motives or anything, but there's, you know, a lot of folks, you know, who are trying to, uh, you know, like call, like say that an execution shouldn't happen because because the person is innocent. Um, And like I said, with the capital cases I've covered, the facts have tended to point to, uh, not in all cases, but the, the facts have tended to point toward a person's guilt. But there's a, stronger case to be made about you know like did the process serve them correctly I mean I, I think I've said on, I've, I've said this on Twitter and I, I think I've said this to uh, like I've, I've said this in the past that you know you, you can believe that this person is guilty and still I mean whatever your feelings are I mean you can believe that person is guilty and you can still oppose their execution. I mean you know one does not necessarily cancel out the other.
2: And that maybe brings us to some more recent happenings than the Alabama, you know, criminal justice system, which is they want to make it easier to get to the death part in the death penalty, right? Mm
3: -hmm. The legislature passed the law, which um, some other states have it as well. But um, right now, your when you exhaust, and this only covers state appeals. But um, right now, the way it works is like when you exhaust your direct appeals, your Rule Thirty Two appeals process begins where you can challenge things like the adequacy of counsel um the law that was passed by the legislature this spring has both processes run concurrently and that's become a that's become a major issue for defense attorneys because you know like they they' bring out the point, like how can you challenge the adequacy how can you challenge the adequacy of your counsel when your counsel is handling your direct appeal? I mean, you're basically trying to undermine your counsel's competence your your competence at the same time that your council is basically trying to defend you through this appeals process.
2: Hmm. So there that again, and that's sort of pointing to the fact of like whether or not you think this person is innocent, whether or not you think the death penalty itself is wrong. There may be something sort of the deck is stacked <laughs> um, in, in the appeals process. I also w- wanted to ask you sort of some Alabama specific questions here um, uh, are the chief um, law enforcement officer in the land. Uh, Jeff Mm -hmm. Sessions is, of course, uh, Alabama, former Alabama senator, Uh, someone covering the criminal justice system in Alabama. Do you think that there's anything that America can learn from what's going on in Alabama uh, about what might be in our future?
3: um,
2: Sessions has
3: been kind of... um, Sessions was attorney general of Alabama back in the mid-90s, but he's pretty much been a... Yeah, he's been a senator he, he was sworn in in nineteen ninety seven so he hasn't had a direct hand in the Alabama criminal system now now the criminal justice system now that said there are there are definitely things to learn from Alabama, one of which is that we have um you know like the one of the chief problems we have is is our prisons are terribly overcrowded. Um, I think the last figure I saw was that the prisons are at 172% capacity. Wait, wait say um, that again?
2: 172? One hundred. One
3: 172. 172% capacity. The, mm. the current system we have, and I can recite this number because I've written about it repeatedly over the last five years, but the current prison system we have was built to house 13,318 inmates. It currently holds about 23,000 inmates. Um, and, and, and that is actually progress, believe it or not, because back in 2007, it was closer to 25, 25, 25,000 inmates. It was almost 200% capacity. Um, and what, why did that happen? you know, Alabama was, uh, an early adopter of habitual offender laws, um, you know, there were mandatory sentencing laws, and you had a legislature that you know you know couldn't couldn't wait to declare you know as many felonies as it could now, to its credit, the legislature has recognized this and is trying to turn things around. They passed a comprehensive um, sentencing reform package uh a few years back. um they also passed a prison reform package to try and like one of the things that we had was, you know, like a lot of people were in prison for technical parole violations, and we passed a sweeping uh, parole, excuse me, prison prison reform uh, bill modeled on Texas's, and that's started that's reduced the entire prison population by about two thousand inmates over the last few years. Um, so the overall population is coming down, but um, you know, the, the conditions in Alabama prisons are still terrible. Um, the prisons have suffered for years from, you know, like, basically stagnant funding. And, um, you you know, it's now, now these were, these were not necessarily Alabama exclusive problems. um, But, but I mean, like, these are the kinds of decisions that have been made by Alabama politicians for, for bad. And then I guess, you know, for recently for good, at least, you know, the recognizing the problem and trying to, to address the situation. But
2: to be clear, actually, Jeff Session was involved in the Creating the problem part.
3: <laughs> he was, I mean, he was, and he, he hasn't
2: was, been there. He hasn't been involved in state government for the fixing the problem part.
3: Right? Yeah. I mean, he was. I mean, you know, it's a lot of the decisions that screwed up our um, our prison system predate Jeff Sessions. I mean, I, I don't know that he was. Um, uh, you know, like a, he wouldn't he wouldn't have been elected attorney general if, if he wasn't a tough on crime. Kind of guy, but again, that's not that's not that's not necessarily like Sessions himself. That's a, I mean, like that that that's you know, like the whole state or or the whole. I mean, you know, I, I don't know that in the mid nineties you would have been able to elect any attorney general in any part of the country who wasn't a tough on crime.
2: Right. Well, fair uh, point. Fair yeah. point. But actually, I guess I can say this. Maybe you can't. But Jeff Sessions still seems stuck in that era. Is my uh, my concern is that. Jeff Sessions hasn't changed very much, even though uh, some some conservatives, in fact, have some conservative lawmakers in Alabama have, have moved on that issue.
3: It, it has. Yeah, it, it has been noted that Alabama is trying to make it like just trying to reduce its prison population, whereas Jeff Sessions is taking measures that would likely increase prison population overall. Yeah, that, that would be a fair statement.
2: <laughs> Not that that's funny, but it's, tar- it's terrible. Uh, it's yeah. just, we live in an age of, of irony upon irony and injustice mm-hmm. upon injustice. And, uh, sometimes that makes me, I have no, no other response, but to chuckle. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, you too. Uh, mm-hmm. before you go, I actually wonder also, uh, you were covering there's, uh, you, you said you just, uh, had been on the phone with Mo Brooks. Um, yeah. uh, what is going on in Alabama politics right now?
3: Uh, well, let's see, do you have another hour to talk about
2: (laughs) that? uh, Well, I'm especially curious about what we can learn, you know, like, I mean, I do feel like there's some use to look to Alabama for, for what the rest of the country might be able to, to understand because Alabama is a place that I think the current administration is getting some people and ideas from. So, Mm -hmm. um, wonder if you can help us out with that.
3: Um, well, uh, let's see. I mean, I can tell, obviously we have a, we have a Senate election, which is um, it, it's, we have Luther. We have the incumbent Luther Strange, a former Alabama Attorney General, running against Roy Moore, who your listeners probably best know as the Ten Commandments judge. And you have Mo Brooks, the congressman, and um, part he was part of the Tea Party Vanguard. Here, um, the campaign is kind of taking this interesting. It, it's taking this interesting twist because. Um, you know, like Luther Strange is basically getting all the money and he's getting money from Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, Mo Brooks has kind of, kind of won the radio endorsement primary. Like he's been backed by Sean Hannity and Laura Ingraham. And I think probably more critically, the local, a lot of the local conservative radio, uh, especially in Birmingham and North Alabama are fully on his, uh, fully on his side. And then you have Roy Moore who has pretty much all the faith voters and also has the most motivated faith voters. So like, like, you know, if you were to create an experiment where you split three key elements of the Republican coalition in Alabama and then have them fight each other, you would have the Alabama Senate race Mm -hmm. pretty much. You've got the money versus the radio versus the the faith-based voters. Um, And, you know, it's, but it's become an unusual dynamic, you know, like the, Up until, I want to say about two weeks ago, I mean, the Republican campaign was basically like, you know, who loves Donald Trump the most? Mm -hmm. But then then Donald Trump attacked Jeff Sessions, who's still popular with primary voters here. And that kind of threw everybody for a loop, um, but threw the campaigns for a loop, because, you know, like they didn't want to choose sides between these two, you know, I mean, it was was almost like mom and dad are fighting, you know, like (laughs) at at this point. Um, So, you know, and you know, like I mean, they're talking about but I mean they're talking about basic things like, you know, like you'll see a lot of oftentimes like they're doing things that seem disconnected from, you know, like what's actually happening in Alabama. Like for instance, they all came out for repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Well, nearly all the repeal bills included cuts to Medicaid, which a million Alabamians, most of them children, depend on for health insurance. It also keeps the hospitals open. It keeps the primary care providers open. So, you know, I would ask him, so, you know, what do you think about these cuts to Medicaid? And they really didn't have an answer. Like but most of them didn't really have an answer, like beyond going beyond the slogan you had, um, like, you know, uh, so, I mean, like there is that there's a lot of talk, uh, there's a lot of tough talk about immigration and getting tough on immigration. Um, Only three and a half percent of Alabama's population is foreign born compared with, um, I think it's like 13 percent, maybe nationwide. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I can tell you, I mean, if there's any lessons, uh, I'll say this, the Alabama Senate race is becoming this curious disconnect between, you know, what the camp, like, you know, what the campaigns say is important And what's actually happening on the ground in Alabama. And in some cases, it's leading them into places where they could or it's leading them into votes that could be seriously, Mm -hmm. like seriously harmful for people who actually live in the state. I was going to
2: say, I mean, do people in the state of Alabama have the different priorities? Because I do. It turns out a lot of people do know that when their care comes from Medicaid, for instance, they know that that's where they're getting their health care. Um, yeah. So, is that something that there's the voters might uh, might be aware they're being it's something I mean, It
3: comes up every. I mean, you know, like I, I can say, like it's the biggest single thing that the legislature deals with every year because I mean it is the cornerstone of healthcare in Alabama. Whether people make the connection between, you know. Medicaid, like I mean, because Medicaid is it's thought of as this, you know, like it, it's thought of as like a um, like a poverty
2: program. Yeah, people think what of what it as a poverty program, but it's not. I mean, foster yeah. children, mm-hmm. um, disabled children mm-hmm. in schools, hospitals, mm-hmm. and we talk a lot of we've we've talked a lot about Medicaid on the show, so our listeners yeah, yeah. are very aware that it's not for poor and disabled people necessarily. Yeah.
3: I mean, I can like I can say we've you know like in our reporting like we've tried to explain what what Medicaid does and you know whether people necessarily make the connections like I, like I I know but you know but you know if they're not making the connections from our reporting you know you have the Alabama Hospital Association which is you know banging the drum and reminding people hey this is this is important you have the local chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics which is you know like saying hey we need this or else we're going to start a PD. Pediatricians' offices are either going to lay people off or, especially in rural areas, shut down completely. Um, So, I mean, those messages are getting out. Whether they're, you know, whether they're actually landing with voters, I mean, you know, like, well, you know, it's it's hard to say. But I will say that on the state level, very few politicians ever wanted like be seen cutting Medicaid or or doing anything like that. So, I mean, in that case. You know, like within, you know, like down down the street at the Alabama State Capitol, um, they're not going to be cutting. They're not going to be cutting Medicaid unless like unless their hand is forced Mm -hmm. by something else. But they're not going to voluntarily do it.
2: Well, I would encourage people to pay attention because I do think that there's a little microcosm of issues happening Mm -hmm. in the Alabama Senate race uh, Mm -hmm. that definitely is happening on the national level. We didn't even get into the immigration front, although I will I will just point out that uh, Alabama is representative in some ways. Of, the, of of a part of that debate because s- Trump's strongest supporters, most anti-immigrant supporters, I believe there are demographic and electoral analysis that show they tend to be the ones with the least contact with foreign-born citizens. Um, you can almost relate it on a you know one-to-one ratio. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, if you have contact with immigrants, you tend to be more pro-immigration reform. <laughs> if you don't have contact with immigrants boy are you angry um, yeah. so it's,
3: inter- I mean, it's interesting we do have a growing like we do have a growing immigrant community in Alabama it's just small relative to like the population as a whole I mean you, you know it's it, so it's you know, it's, it's, it's growing, like, especially in um, North Alabama, like, I think at one point, I remember 10 years ago, there were um, 27 different Mayan languages that were spoken in the state of Alabama, because, you know, we have Guatemalan immigrants, you know, Mm -hmm. coming here. So, Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's very, it's very interesting, like, just how, but it's, it's still relatively small, it's small compared to the rest of the population. So yeah, it's, We'll have to see how. I mean, like, if, if immigration trends continue, like how these how these politics play out over the next few years.
2: If we're all still here, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's my pleasure. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, yeah. We'll stay in touch. Thank you so much. Okay,
3: great. Thanks so much.
2: So I actually think about Harry's Razors almost every day because my husband not only uses Harry's Razors, he actually has like a little stand that you can get from there that he bought extra. Uh, doesn't come with the kit um, that he got to try. He bought it at a store. It's a little like zinc cube uh, that you stand your razor up in. My husband is a very neat and tidy person. He's very selective about what we display on our bathroom counters. Sometimes he gets after me uh, for what I put on it. Uh, So he really loves the look of this razor. I can say that it is pretty nifty. Uh, That is not why you would buy it um, unless you're you know, not the person using it. Uh, He also loves what it does. Uh, I can attest that he looks great and feels great. And, you know, Harry's is also super convenient. And as the person, me, who does the shopping for the house, it's nice not to have that on my list. He is a subscriber to Harry's razors, um, which you can be too. They are all about a great shave at a fair price. And that is why over 3 million guys, including my husband, have switched to Harry's. Jeff and Andy are just two ordinary Joes, were fed up with buying overpriced razors, and so they started Harry's to fix shaving. They brought their own German factory with over 100 years of blade-making experience to ensure the highest quality. All their products are backed by a 100% guarantee. And Harry's offers all their blades at half the price of the leading five-blade razor, and they sell directly to you over the internet. Like I said, you can actually subscribe, so you don't have to remember to get razors. You are never out of razors. Claim your free trial offer from Harry's today. $13 value for free when you sign up just cover shipping. Your free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. It does not include the really cool sink cube to display your razor on. You have to get that extra, um, but it is pretty cool. To get your free trial, go to harrys.com friends right now. That's harrys.com slash friends. So welcome back to the show, Jameel Smith, my former colleague, still friend, independent journalist and contributing writer to The Daily Beast. Welcome to the show, Jamil.
3: Appreciate it. Thank you.
2: So I thought of you for this segment because I've just followed your writing, um, recent writing on the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And I know also in general, you and I share some points of view on criminal justice reform, Um, I've missed you. I also wanted to have you on because we haven't talked in a while. But it also turns out that there is a personal experience you bring to bear on the subject that I I confess I didn't know about. Why don't you tell us more about this?
1: So, again, thanks again for bringing me back on. Uh, It's really good to hear your voice, my friend. Um, I wanted to, yeah, essentially, where do I start? I was 15 years old when my cousin Andre disappeared and he, you know, it was about October. Nobody really knew where he was. We were panicked. We were freaked out. We didn't know what had happened to him. And, you know, months later, uh, about two or three months later, he was found, um, stabbed to death in the trunk of a car in, in Michigan and we're from Cleveland. So, you know, there's a lot how do you end up in, you know, parking lot at the Pontiac Silverdome? Um, this is, there were a lot of questions involved and a lot of grief. It was the first time I'd ever had anybody close to me die. And Andre was, you know, 10 years older than me. He was like my big brother and the big brother I never had. And so this, it still to this day, um, you know, it still affects me greatly. It, It was, uh, Gosh, how many years ago? (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, 25, 26 years ago. And we, uh, they found the people who killed him. And we went to the sentencing. And my dad, my uncle, and me. And I sat there looking at the actual people who took Andre's life. And I watched the sentencing go down. And they got life without parole, and everything was fine. And we just, we just, I just remember being so satisfied in that moment, not that they got life without parole. I mean, we can get into the mass incarceration bit and whether or not that's enough to replace my cousin's life and whatnot, but just that, you know, they weren't going to be killed for this. I had every motivation in the world to want to see those people dead. Um, you know, killed by the state as recompense for my cousin's life. And I just realized at that, that moment, and I remember very clearly sitting in that courtroom, I remember thinking, you know, I don't know if the state has the death penalty, mm. but I really hope they don't get it. I really hope they have to think about it. I really hope that, the, you know, we're not the business of eye for an eye. And that really has informed my position on the death penalty ever since. I think it should be abolished. I think it's a you know, racially imbalanced, uh, you know, geographically imbalanced uh, method of punishment that is primitive, medieval, and shouldn't be part of any kind of uh, thing that we call America.
2: I'm, I'm especially interested in your experience because I do feel like one part of the debate over death penalty, kind of one that, that, the surefire winner, if you're in a debate, is like some people, some people are innocent and they shouldn't have to die. But that is not a, for some, that's not necessarily the best argument against it, really. I mean, I think it's a great argument, right? Like one innocent mm-hmm. person is too many, but you, that's, that's hopefully not, a, that's pretty rare. The The stronger mm-hmm. argument, I think, and I think this is what you're, you're sharing, is that even if someone is guilty, even if the system yeah. has found that person to have done the crime that they're accused of, the death penalty is is not the most just way to to end to end the process. Um, right.
1: I mean, for for one, it's not a deterrent. We've seen that. Um, you know, it's not as if death penalty, uh, states, uh, suddenly, you know, all of a sudden after the institution of the penalty, um, have lower murder rates, have lower rates of sexual assault. These are not deterrents. It's simply a matter of revenge. It's a matter of vengeance. It's not really anything to do with justice. And so that's, that's the big sort of moral problem that I have with it. But you throw the racism into it, you know. <laughs>
2: as one does, and, as as it happens, as one does. yes. Uh, <laughs> and it is inescapable too, because what happens the real the real story of the death penalty uh, is that it's unequally applied. That if you yeah. are a, a wealthy person, a privileged person, a white person, even if you committed the same sort of crime, you're not going to find yourself in the same position. And that's what's unjust about it.
1: Especially if you're, uh, say, a black person killing a white person. Mm -hmm. Now, in my cousin's case, it was black people killing black people. Mm -hmm. So the Marshall Project, I remember, reported last year that that 327 Americans at that point had been executed for interracial murders, okay? So black defendants killing white victims, white defendants killing black victims, so on and so forth. Now, 296 of those were black defendants killing white people. And 31 of 31% 31% were for whites who killed blacks. Now that's the death penalty. Okay. So killing white people white people killing black people is significantly less risk of getting the death penalty than black killing black people killing white people. Um, not to say that like one is worse than the other, but why were, you know, why are the, why is the sentencing so disparate? And that when you have something like that in your criminal justice system, you just can't abide by it. Um, it's just inherently unfair. And we really shouldn't have anything unfair in our justice system. I mean, it, it is called I justice. Pretty,
2: That's like the whole well, point. I mean, is, you would
1: think, you know, I mean, these days it's a little tough, you know, with the Department of Justice. You don't really know what's going on. But the point is, inherently, I think the death penalty not only is unjust and it's racist, but it's ineffective. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. It doesn't stop people from committing crimes. It doesn't stop people from doing the kinds of things that earn a sentence of capital punishment. It just is for making people feel better, which frankly doesn't go a whole long way towards actual justice.
2: And it gives us an unfortunately really easy segue into talking about current events, which I don't think the death penalty is far away from current events. For one thing, it's very current in some places, like the reporter from Alabama we just talked to. But also I've been thinking about the death penalty in part of our as part of our national conversation because uh, as recently as a year ago, there was a sense for those of us who watch and care about criminal justice reform that we were reaching a tipping point, you know, Mm -hmm. that there was like a starting to be a consensus on both sides of the aisle uh, towards reducing our prison population, towards uh, getting rid of mandatory minimums, towards uh, e- even towards not necessarily abolition of the death penalty, but there started to be, be a sense of maybe we need to reexamine this. Um, some states put, it on, put them on hold, largely because they're having trouble getting execution drugs, but still that's a good reason to put them on hold. And also the national opinion polls were starting to trend mm-hmm. in the direction of uh, uh, being against the death penalty. Right. Okay, but well, that was a year ago.
1: People <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, have uh, different feelings now. You, you and support. I were together, g- you mind.
2: know what, a year ago, you and I were at the Democratic Convention, and we were thinking, finally, you know what, things are looking up. Um, I mean... <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is kind of amazing to think about it. In fact, that that was a year ago. We were sweating our brains out in Philly. Yep. And yet thinking that like, OK, this is so much better organized. It, it was so much, so much better organized in the Republican convention. the Republicans didn't seem to even know what they were doing. The programs were all messed up. The speeches were completely wing nuttery. And, and it's yep. just.
2: And, and and violent. The mean, speeches were 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 race baiting oh. and violent, uh, and anti American in some in some senses. And the Democratic convention was so patriotic, so uplifting. You know, I
1: in speaking to the criminal justice element. Yeah, the speeches uh, were punctuated at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland by lock her up, mm-hmm. lock her up, lock her up. And so I guess an element of criminal justice
3: all throughout.
2: Yes. And, and so, yes, let's think about what's changed. We don't have to catalog everything, but so one of the things that's definitely changed is the direction of criminal justice reform, which is to say it's now directed backwards. Um, (laughs) and I, I, I worry that that bloodlust, um, is going to, uh, recharge, um, the batteries of those who think that we should be killing more people more often.
1: Yeah, uh, um, I think that this Justice Department is uh, doing some damage, uh, I think, to all, America's moral fiber, not to speak too seriously. Um, uh, no, but please. I think that that's a of
2: I, I think that that's correct. Our, our president often gets the spotlight for that. But going mm-hmm. on behind the scenes um, in I mean, an everyday way. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a reason Jeff Sessions did not has not resigned despite being utterly humiliated. Anybody who, who's humiliated by their boss and the man, and the method that Jeff Sessions is undergoing right now probably resigned just to, out of spite, you know, let alone just out of pride. But he's doing his life's work right mm-hmm. now. He loves it. Exactly he, and he loves it. He and he's getting done. Of doing.
2: And this is stuff and that he's, he's wanted to do long before Donald Trump got on the scene, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so what? You know, what we're seeing, I think, is, you know, maybe not necessarily direct calls for increased capital punishment by Jeff Sessions. But we're seeing, you know, an, sort of an erosion of humanity in terms of, you know, suspects, in terms of people who use marijuana, for instance, mm-hmm. um, people who, uh, you know, are not white, male, straight, what have you. Um those people are automatic, you know, a little bit pushed a little bit further into the category of automatic suspects
3: mm-hmm.
1: in the Jeff Sessions Justice universe. Um, that, I mean, that's a problem. And so it's something a lot of people have been working for generations to get out of. Um, not just you know working through Jim Crow and, and 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 trying to make sure that you know people get equal justice under the law, but also frankly recently you know we're dealing with the problem of mass incarceration it's not just a problem about you know black and, and it's not just a problem for black people you no know, it is predominantly one for people of color it is a problem for all of us that people need to take seriously because this country is becoming increasingly increasingly so, you know comfortable with solving its problems its legal problems it's 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 crime problems with just locking people away and that doesn't really do anything i mean now it's better than killing them (laughs) let's you know let that, that certainly that certainly you can't reverse those kinds of mistakes but that just the idea that this country is centered around locking people up until you know until the face of the drug problem becomes white and then all of a sudden we're interested in treatment that is it's a serious problem. And under Jeff Sessions, I only see that getting worse, especially for people, say, who use marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, frankly, I, I'm not really sure what it will take um, for you know, Trump to actually just fire Jeff Sessions. But I know there are a lot of people in the criminal reform community that would welcome that firing, despite the other consequences that may uh, follow it.
2: Oh, I think that we're going to at least get at least one uh, cycle of news that says he fires him over criminal justice reform issues, like the same way that they mm-hmm. fired Comey because of, you know, he was unfair to Hillary. We're going to get at least one tweet <laughs> or one message from the White House saying that, oh, well, Jeff Sessions, you know, is really terrible on civil liberties and that's why we fired him, which won't be the <laughs> truth, but it, it, there, it'll, it'll be, you know, one tweet worth of news. From Malcolm Gladwell and Panoply Media, check out the new season of Revisionist History, a podcast that looks at events from the past and asks whether we got it right the first time. This season, will explore a murder trial from the Jim Crow South, and I think of special interest to, with friends like these listeners, a story of a terrorist who had a change of heart. There'll be talk of french fries and the saddest song in the world, making mischief, putting crazy theories to the test. I could go on. It is going to be a wild ride. Listen in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I was going to point out that this dehumanizing of uh, people on the wrong end of the criminal justice system, uh, we may not be tying that directly to increased calls for capital punishment in the system, but we're getting dog whistle calls for increased um, application of capital uh, punishment in the extrajudicial sense um, mm-hmm. with violence against people who are accused of crimes. Um, yeah. That, I know some people thought that that speech that, that Trump gave in front of the police in Long Island was kind of a sideshow. And, you know, one of the 18-level dimensional, five-dimensional chess games that they're playing to get us to not talk about Russia. <laughs> but that mm-hmm. was horrifying. And also... Last attention was paid, I saw some people, you know, sort of in our circle of conversation, um, you know, progressive lefty people talk about the speech he gave in Ohio Mm -hmm. where he talked, he gave a graphic description of a gang member. I think he used the terms slicing and dicing and young, beautiful girl. Um, yes.
1: And we know what kind of women uh, Donald Trump finds beautiful.
2: <laughs> well, they are young. <laughs> they're young yep. for sure. So, and they're, yeah. Yeah, they're white. We're talking
1: about young yeah. white girls. Young everybody.
2: white girls. Um, and I don't know if people realize like this, is not it's not a distraction when you're calling for violence. You know? No,
1: it, no. It, it's, it, and it's also not a joke. This idea that uh, the White House is dismissing is open endorsement, not just, you know, mention or recommendation it's it was damn near in order to be rougher <laughs> he described literally the process by which Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore mm-hmm. uh, the rough rise he actually uses the word rough in context with throwing people in the back of a van uh, and he just says you know what you're being too nice
2: yeah being politically too nice correct
1: when you let a 25 year old kid get his neck broken, In the back of a van, that's too nice.
2: And I guess the the term politically correct can be used if you mean constitutional. (laughs) (laughs) I'm following the Constitution, and that is, like, literally politically correct.
1: (laughs) Right. Kazir Khan, you know, I know offered him his copy of the Constitution, and the president really should have taken him up on the the offer. Yeah. Because it's clear that he has no either knowledge of or respect for uh, the— rights of due process. He certainly doesn't have any respect for them when it comes to himself. Why would he respect it when it comes to me and you?
2: Right. Um, And I I can actually tie this back to Russia in a way, which is that.
1: Oh, totally. uh, It's totally totally connected. His police violence speech in Long Island and the speech about the MS-13 gang members, the Salvadoran gang in in Ohio, which really there's MS-13 gang members in Ohio. I'm from Ohio. I doubt really that that's the case we're talking about these kinds of that kind of like over racist rhetoric um, it's not just about the racism it's about him covering his own butt it's all about him showing an utter res- lack of respect for the rule of law and for uh, and it's basically you know it's advocacy for for you know people to be essentially vigilantes right um, it's like it's people saying hey look, um, the police are being too nice and you have these mortal, terrible terrorist threats, essentially, in your neighborhood. What are you going to do?
2: Right. It's an in-justify-the-means uh, mentality. Uh, yep. And it's actually, the through line here goes back to the way he won his election. Right? Mm-hmm. It's disregard for rule of law, Ends justify the means. Um, we, we'll do anything we can to win, to beat the criminal, in which case in, in the election metaphor or parallel as Hillary. And then also um, the kinds of uh, justice, so-called justice, that he's arguing for, the kind of nationalism uh, he advocates, is very much reflective of the kind of government that Putin has. So there's no separate... It's not a a distraction. (laughs) It's not a distraction. It's part of the story. It's part of how both he came to power and how he is abusing power. I mean, I, I think... I mean, I'm one of those people that I do think that uh, your everyday Trump voter is not going to give a shit about the the russia hacked the election story. I, I, I see that, you know? I see mm. that they're not going to be moved by collusion arguments because, in part, probably they do believe that the ends justify the means and Hillary was terrible and we should beat her any way we can. I do think... That, I mean, maybe I'm being, I hate to, I can't believe I'm going to use the word optimistic in the context of this conversation, but I'm going to. <laughs> um, the kinds of uh, vicious authoritarian policies that Trump and Sessions seem to be moving towards are going to hurt Trump voters, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean
1: it's not even just it's not even just the direct effects, say of healthcare policy that would take away uh, the insurance or make it unaffordable for people in that block of voters. That's you know the so-called white working class. Which
2: it most definitely would. Yes,
1: which it most definitely would. It's about the fact that systemic racism doesn't just hurt people of color; it hurts everyone, when you give police, say, the green light to be more brutal, to be uh, more abusive, that has an effect on white people too. I mean, it's not just the Justine Damon case in Minneapolis where this, you know, this, this proves true, where, you know, you have jumpy, unqualified police officers with weapons who can create tragedy at a moment's notice. I'm talking about fact that, you know, most people killed by police every year are white people. Mm-hmm. The most that's the that's the heaviest demographic. Now, granted, proportionally by the population in the United States, it's more black folks, you know, per capita, you know, in our within our population than white folks per capita. But the physical number of white people is, is the most. And so the idea that they shouldn't care about police violence, the idea that it's just an issue that black people should be concerned about is astounding, it's astounding logic, and so you you have the President of the United States you know advocating more of this violence, that should have an effect on people that should they should people should be able to recognize what systemic racism allows, what it permits um just as well as what it overtly does on its own
2: right, and it doesn't also ever. Really get to the part where it helps people in their everyday lives. Systemic racism, systemic violence, is not going to make your life better. Um, Right. Which is the argument he seems to make all the time. Like that's actually the the underlying argument for the Trump presidency is I will be cruel to the brown and black people, and you will get a job. But that doesn't. That's not.
1: (laughs) It's it's the the reason behind this this immigration policy that he he backed this week from the Senate, Tom Cotton and the other Mm -hmm. senator. Uh, proposing this, this inhumane policy that would reduce immigration by 50%, I guess, over the next 10 years, mm-hmm. um, it is switching us to a skills based system. Now, granted, Canada has a similar system, but it's not, you know, this, this is primarily directed at people who are coming in from non English speaking countries who are most likely not able to afford formal education. And, you know, are, are, you know, quote unquote, taking jobs away from Americans. Who do you think he's talking about? He's not talking about immigrants from Poland. He's not talking about immigrants from from uh, from Switzerland okay? <laughs> or from Russia, for that matter. He's talking about people who are brown and are coming from down south, coming from Central America and coming from Mexico. And this is a policy designed to inhibit immigration from those folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention the, the motherland, the continent, Africa as well. So, I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's social engineering. It's not, you know, it's not job creation. <laughs> and people need to understand it for what it is. And I'm glad that um, at least you saw some journalists yesterday starting to call it out uh, for what it is. And also I think you're going to see some Democrats hopefully, um, <laughs> hopefully calling it out uh, for exactly what it is. It's not it's not something just a a policy to be opposed to. It's it's a philosophy that's dangerous.
2: Right. And I actually want to call out, um, I mean, Jim Acosta got a lot of credit for for having, you know, a a real uh, heated exchange with Stephen Miller over this. But uh, April Ryan and Glenn Thrush also uh, have been were great on this issue. And April Ryan, especially pointing out that this is an attempt by the Trump administration to turn minorities against each other uh, and scapegoat each other.
1: Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Two moves this week were purely about that. It's the affirmative action thing was Mm -hmm. designed to turn black folks, Asian folks, and Latino folks against one another. Um, the idea that Asians are now the the sort of the Trojan horse into the (laughs) the elimination of affirmative action. You see now that there's a case, Harvard involving an Asian student Um, who believes that uh, there was discrimination involved in the rejection. And the same lawyer that helped Abigail Fisher lose her Supreme court case is now backing this person. So that it's, it's frankly, it's something I talked about with Sherilyn Eiffel, um, who's the um, president of the uh, NAACP legal defense fund. And she said, you know, it's such an obvious ham handed strategy uh, and it won't work. She said, because, these groups are already working together to an extent that you know there's no there's no chance that the you know the Trump administration with this kind of like you know you know ridiculous mm-hmm. policy is going to make any in, you know inroads towards further dividing our communities right these communities are already working together in so many different ways um to fight not only the Trump policies but injustice everywhere and there's just no chance that you know they're going to uh, to, to break people apart, but with you know this kind of silly nonsense, it's just red meat for the base, and it's red meat for you know for people who they want maybe the base to believe that these groups will turn against one another, or to believe that they should be opposed to one another. It's really not about actually turning us against one another because they already know that probably that. We're not
2: really listening to him anymore. Yeah, I I actually think that it's a weird—I will give credit for, I guess, a multidimensional chess on this point, although I'm not sure how intentional it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Strategy, which is that they may overtly be looking like they're trying to turn minorities against each other, but the real target of their message is white people. (laughs) They're not actually hoping that tactic will work. You know, I don't think they—I don't think that they really believe that tactic will work. I think they're just using it as a as a way of like t- telling white people that all see, see, you're right. You're right. All of these people, they just mm-hmm. fight amongst themselves and and they're threats to you. Uh, but I don't know <laughs> like if they'll, a- <laughs> they'll recognize how much this might backfire. I get to bring up. I think, you know, that this is one of my favorite um, recent statistics, uh, trends, statistical trends. There's so few of them that are good, I like to embrace this one, which is that um, the African-American community in America used to be kind of a lagging indicator on uh, approving of same-sex marriage and same-sex rights or LGBTQ rights. Uh, ever since we started having the argument about being able to refuse service uh, to people of, uh, you know, LGBTQ community, uh, mm-hmm. African-Americans have started to, you know, would like, maybe you could have seen it coming. I, I think I did. They've started to approve more of expanding the rights uh, for gay and lesbian people. Uh, oh, of course, So, they have, so yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, thank that, you, like, Mike that Pence, that somehow, for, like, exactly right. for making that, people like, realize. I really want to
1: strike back at this myth? It's like the myth that like black folks who go to church hate all gay people is <laughs> something that's really pernicious. Um, I think that if you if you reach out to black churches nowadays, which go every week. If you reach out to black churches nowadays and you see the acceptance, the wide birth of personalities and lifestyles that are within the black church, I think that fiction would be really um, disproven pretty quickly. Uh, unfortunately, you don't see too many, um, you know, frankly, predominantly white press, predominantly white politicians in churches unless there's a political event <laughs> happening in that church. So, um, but it's just not know, surprising I, at
2: all to see that they that the, the you know black community would see what's being done to same sex couples and think, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, like that looks awfully it, familiar to me. Yeah, uh, and I John mean, Lewis, it, it, Representative it also, John Lewis, he's taken to you know he posts the picture of him getting arrested for using the whites only bathroom and pointing to that in the continue in the continuity of the bathroom bills in places like North Carolina. Bathroom politics is not small beer. You know
1: right yeah and that actually gets me on another beef that i have right now it's just that you know you see john lewis um uh, and some other democrats highlighting the fact that these issues trans people being able to use the bathroom of their choice for instance is an economic issue it, it has real impact at home and so, so in your checkbook whatever however you want to term it the the recent democratic plan, <laughs> this is better deal, um, seems to ignore, ignore identity politics altogether in favor of this economic agenda that seems to kind of come out of the Bernie Sanders um, sort of class-only thinking, which is, let's cater to this, again, so-called white working class, um, these folks who maybe voted for Obama and now voted for Trump in the last election, And we're going to make sure that they are reached. We're going to make sure that we cater our platform to reach them. Well, what about the people who have been standing with you all along? Um, A lot of whom were disenchanted the last election and didn't show up, or a lot of whom were disenfranchised. um, A lot of whom um, are bearing the majority of the attacks, you know, both physical and political from this administration. And so I'm really curious to know what the Democrats plan to do, especially given that now, you know, you have the, you know, their campaign head talking about, you know, oh, yeah, we're it's OK for, you know, someone in, a, you know, who's running as a Democrat doesn't believe in abortion rights. What? <laughs> really?
2: Well, you know, that, that's OK. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Just in time for us to wrap up, you've now introduced the topic that we really should devote a whole show to. Um, which I'm serious. Uh, I think, I think we should at some point. Um, and may- maybe we should have you back to talk about it because I think that this fair deal, new deal, better deal, two for one deal, um, you know, buy one, get one free deal. Like, I don't know. It's, a, they. I don't like the whole deal. <laughs> I don't think politics should be thought of in terms of deals, you know? Um, deal to me yeah. is the kind of thing that that I don't know if they consciously were trying to echo Trump personally but that was his that's his that was his catchphrase during the campaign right I'm going to negotiate better deals right then right? and,
1: and they think they're F- echoing FDR and what they are doing is just simply it seems like they're biting off Trump and yeah. it, it's just it's It's not a good branding, but yes, I'd love to come back.
2: Well, we we should definitely. I'm writing
1: about it at the moment.
2: Okay. Well, we'll definitely have you back, Um, but we should wrap up now. I really appreciate you coming on. It was nice to chat and catch up with you and thank you for sharing your experience with us. People can find you at the Daily Beast for now. What is your Twitter handle? I'm blanking at the moment.
1: Just at Jameel Smith, J-A-M-I-L-S-M-I-T-H.
2: All right. And they can follow you there too. Uh, You are um, everywhere. (laughs)
1: <laughs> just trying to keep up with you, my friend. All
2: right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, we'll definitely, we're going to, we'll chat better deal soon. No doubt. And that is it for our show today. If you want to catch up with our guests, Jamil just gave his Twitter handle, which is at Jamil Smith. Brian Lyman can be found at, at Lyman underscore Brian, which is L-Y-M-A-N underscore Brian. The show itself is at Crooked underscore Friends. I am actually taking off Twitter for the month of August. Uh, My uh, tweeting will be handled by other people. Um, You'll get uh, your dose of adorables on Friday, but otherwise it'll be pretty quiet. I'm at Anna Marie Cox, if you still want to follow. You can write the show if you have more than 140 characters worth of thoughts at withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. We are collecting both the experience of trans people and questions that you might have for our adults-only sex ed show, which we're putting together. And you know what? You have made it to the end of the episode. You have made it to the end of the week. Congratulations. Some of us had to fight harder than others to get here. And if you're like me, you may be drawn to be thinking about what you didn't do this week and what you should have done this week, what you meant to do this week, what you did wrong this week. You made it through the week. I made it through the week. I have to remind myself to be kind to myself sometimes. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others. And we'll be back next week
0: at kpmg we make the difference it's not just something we say it's what we do our professionals believe in the value of collaboration and the power of technology we work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity develop bold solutions that innovate industries and create better outcomes driven by data brighter insights bolder solutions better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference, driving growth and value for our clients. KPMG, make the difference. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley High Performance Sofas and Recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean.